Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and today we're talking about brain health, brain science, and specifically what's known as mild cognitive impairment. In our ongoing series about aging and mental health, today's guest, Dr. Roberto Fernandez, will join us and give us an in-depth perspective on understanding treatment and diagnosis of what many think of as forgetfulness or normal aging. Your memories of the past, your dreams for the future, your ability to recall, reason, and think it's all in that three-pound organ between your ears, known as your brain. With so much at stake, protecting your brain from cognitive decline should be your highest health priority. We're here to help, and I want to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Roberto Fernandez. Dr. Roberto Fernandez is a behavioral neurologist and the medical director at the Pat Summit Clinic at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. Dr. Fernandez has researched, written about, and diagnosed the underlying mechanisms of cognitive or brain aging and Alzheimer's disease, and in doing so, has described novel changes in brain responses that can differentiate early-stage Alzheimer's from normal aging. Additionally, Dr. Fernandez's current research on impaired navigation or getting lost in familiar surroundings is groundbreaking. We'll learn about that and more during our busy show today and our conversation this morning on the Not Old Better Show. But first, today's Healthy Headlines segment. Today's Healthy Headline segment. From our Healthy Headlines, and in this week's Harvard Women's Health Watch and the study in Science Advances, moonlight may affect sleep cycles. Urban legends have linked full moons to everything from werewolves to erratic behavior, but a new study connects them to something else, sleep loss. The research organization Science Advances found that people fell asleep later and slept for less time overall in the three to five days leading up to a full moon. The effect was even more pronounced in areas where people had less access to artificial light. Sleep research study participants wore sleep tracking devices for at least one week and in some cases up to two months. The researchers compared their sleep patterns to the moon phases. Individuals took from 30 to 80 minutes longer to fall asleep during the lead-up to the full moon, and people lost anywhere from 20 to 90 minutes of total sleep on those nights. The researchers said it's possible that the full moon made people more active at night, which is why sleep differences were more pronounced in communities with less access to electricity. Artificial light, they say, might produce a similar effect. There are many theories on why humans even need to sleep, but I'm pretty sure it's to charge our phones. So, sleep well and avoid the moon. And now please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Dr. Roberto Fernandez. Dr. Fernandez, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, I think, an important subject that we're going to be talking about. Of course, we're going to talk a little bit about mild cognitive impairment. I, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing this, this discussion. I know my audience is going to be very interested. We're going to perhaps start with a, an introduction of the subject. But I guess my question in general is, you know, when we hear the term mild cognitive impairment, that word mild maybe throws us a little bit. You know, some might think, well, it's maybe 
slight memory problems or other lapses, but that, that's not exactly the case with mild cognitive impairment. It might even indicate risk factors that could lead to the progression of Alzheimer's. And I wonder if you'll just help us understand mild cognitive impairment and then, and then maybe give us that little bit of introductory uh, information about, the, about cognitive uh, uh, function. Absolutely. I'll be, I'll be happy to. So when we talk about uh, cognitive function in general or cognition, we're talking about all the different processes that our brains do to um, gather information, usually using our senses, like our vision, our hearing, or um, even touching and feeling things around us, or even our own thought processes, right? We can think about things and, and generate information that way. And so all, all the, the processes that our brain does to make sense of that information um, creating new knowledge, right, and then allowing us to interact with the environment based on that knowledge that we acquire, is what we call the what we call cognition. Um, and cognitive function, we when we uh, talk about it in, in in a clinical sense, we talk about what's called cognitive domains. And uh, there are uh, things like, for example, memory, which you mentioned, uh, is one probably one of the most uh, frequently talked about cognitive domains, and uh, others are things like language, uh, attention, visual, spatial perception is another cognitive domain, executive function, which is what allows us to reason or make decisions or plan ahead, uh, and processing speed, how quickly we react or respond to certain uh, stimuli. So those are uh, some of the cognitive domains that we we evaluate even when when we're seeing patients who are concerned about any any cognitive issues. Um, each of these domains has even subdivisions within it, right? So language, for example, uh, there's expressive language uh, where um, you know person speaks or forms words and sentences and a coherent conversation so that's expressive language and then there's language comprehension right when you uh, read or hear and, and understand what people are telling you so that's that just gives you the sense of the complexity of, of cognitive function um, now when we talk about a mild cognitive impairment uh, we're not talking necessarily about a specific disease per se, but basically a situation where uh, there is a decline in one or more of these cognitive domains that I just mentioned. Um, but uh, the impairment that has developed is not uh, significant enough to interfere with the person's ability to go about their daily lives. In other words, a patient may be a person may be having some difficulty. Uh, remembering certain things, but if they're still able to do the things that they normally do from the moment they get up in the morning to the moment they go to bed uh, in the evening uh, and are still high functioning or, and especially still able to work if, they're, if they haven't retired. Um, but the, the, their cognition as can be measured by standardized tests, of which we can talk a little bit more in, in, in a few minutes. Um, when we detect an impairment, but they're still independent with their daily lives, that's when we talk about mild cognitive impairment. Um, if that person then uh, goes on to develop more significant deficits that start interfering with their ability to work or their ability to do basic things like, uh, uh, you know, uh, showering or or eating or management of medications and things like that, then we start 
getting concerned about progression to what we call a dementia phase. And then there's different stages within dementia depending on the severity. Thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. You know, many in my audience, they may or may not even realize that this is going on. And so what do you suggest that family members be aware of in order to to really spot this, to kind of nail this uh, so that the distinction is brought to the attention of uh, medical providers and uh, and so that we're, we're kind of staying a little bit ahead of it with our loved ones? Absolutely. Well, I, I think that the main thing to be aware of is is there a change from from that individual's baseline, and is that change more than it's expected just with normal aging? Because uh, there is such a thing as cognitive aging that it's the the normal uh, decline in certain mental abilities as we get older, uh, and sometimes it's hard to differentiate, especially in, in individuals who are much older, that it may be difficult to differentiate what's normal and what isn't. Right, but whenever there is a change. Um, over you know months or maybe a year or two uh, that is clearly progressing where the person is becoming let's say if we talk about memory increasingly more forgetful uh, or having trouble coming up with words more frequently than than normal I mean we all sometimes stumble on a word and have to think for a minute and but if it's happening more frequently um, if the person is uh, suddenly having trouble finding their way around or getting lost in familiar places um, or suddenly not or not maybe not suddenly but gradually started having trouble um, taking care of finances or doing chores or work that they were able to do without any any difficulty then that may be a, a source for concern um, it also depends on uh, the characteristics of, of the changes in memory. Um, I mentioned that when we get older, there are uh, just as the rest of our bodies go through significant changes, the, 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 our minds, our brains do as well, and that doesn't mean that it is abnormal. Um, but it is uh, common, for example, to uh, forget to do things. Right? Um, sometimes we say, we, and that happens to all of us. We live also very busy lives, and we say we're going to stop by and by the grocery store on our way home and we're too tired or too busy and, and then we forget to do it. That wouldn't be too concerning. Uh, it would be different if the person is, is starting to uh, forget uh, things that they have already done, right? If I go to the grocery store and then get home and completely forget that I went there and I leave, leave the, the milk in the carton in the back uh, of the, the car, uh, then that is that that would be more concerning. So it's just an example of of subtle things that that may be uh, red flags. So red flags then might lead us to our primary care doctor. Is that right for a routine physical exam, perhaps? And at the primary care doctor level, what might be detected then? Yes. Yeah, so there are uh, there are things that can be done at a primary care level uh, that are relatively. Um, I wouldn't say simple, but but easy to to, to do. Um, you mentioned a physical exam, and a physical exam is obviously a clinical exam is important. However, in many cases of cognitive impairment, whether it's mild or even in dementia cases, um, depending on the disease that is causing it, the, the physical exam may be completely normal. Uh, but there are certain 
um, red flags or, or certain findings in an exam that may be helpful in terms of determining uh, a potential cause for cognitive issues. Uh, the first thing that a, a primary doctor will probably do is check to make sure that things that are uh, relatively easy to treat are, are not the ones that are causing the, the, the cognitive difficulties. So uh, if someone has hypothyroidism or someone has vitamin deficiencies like B12 deficiency or um, if they have uh, uh, you know other nutritional deficiencies, they, there can be cognitive issues associated with that. Um, and they may have physical manifestations. Um, so a person who has B12 deficiency might have trouble with balance or may have uh, loss of sensation in the uh, lower extremities. Uh, so those are physical findings that can uh, provide some, some important cues. And so physical exam will be helpful in, in that regard. Um, now, I want to say that there are simple cognitive tests that we call cognitive screeners that uh, a primary care physician can do very easily in 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 a, in a visit they they take a little bit of time but they're not very time consuming they can be done in 10 15 20 minutes uh, and they will not make necessarily a diagnosis but they can certainly show if there are uh, concerns for for a significant cognitive impairment and what areas of cognitive function, which of those domains that I mentioned may be, may be weak. And that is a very useful tool for uh, the medical provider to decide you know, how to proceed also in terms of additional workup or referral to a specialized center like the Pat Solomon Clinic where I work. So at the primary care level, if there is detection of uh, something that might be beyond normal aging. You refer to these cognitive function evaluations, the screening. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. What it, what, what does it test? When should our audience consider this type of an exam from their doctor and uh, and and really request a referral? I'm I'm assuming at that point. Yes. So the the screeners are cognitive tests that are, like I said, relatively. Uh, straightforward to to administer and they don't give you a lot of information but they do give you important information and get a, a also help you with a with a baseline uh, it's you can compare it to maybe a, a simplistic uh, comparison but um, like taking a blood pressure um, check doing a blood pressure check yes when you take or check the blood pressure if it's elevated uh, or elevated a couple times, and you know that that there may be something that there's obviously something wrong. You you can't tell by just a blood pressure check what is causing the elevated blood pressure, but it it uh, gives you a red flag that something uh, is going on, and that additional workup may be done. So the these uh, screener, uh, what we call standardized uh, cognitive tests. Uh, do precisely that. They assess different cognitive domains. So there are parts that, that quickly assess visual, spatial function, or language, and different types of memory, uh, attention, uh, things of that nature. And so you assess all of these, and then you get a, a total score. And if that score falls below what's expected for that uh, patient's uh, person's age and and you know level of education and background, uh, then you may decide, okay, I'm going to repeat it again in six months, as if it's just a slight change, 
or maybe it's time to for the primary care doctor to refer to a neurologist or a behavioral neurologist even even better. So that is uh, th- that's the way that these uh, screeners work. If you have a concern, you maybe well you can just say you know is there a way to test this? Can there can a test be administered in the primary care office? Uh, and if not, you know maybe then if there are concerns, discuss with a with a primary care provider a, a referral. Uh, for further evaluation. We are with Dr. Roberto Fernandez. Dr. Fernandez is the director at the Pat Summit Clinic at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. Dr. Fernandez's residency is in neurology from the University of Rochester. We're talking about mild cognitive impairment today. And so I want to get into a little bit of the more specifics around this testing and talk about some of the tests, uh, such as the neuropsychological testing, structural brain scans, functional brain imaging, PET scans. This, these, this wide array of tests can lead to further detection. And so what should we know and which one do you think is perhaps the most effective for identifying some of this neurodegenerative disease like, uh, such as Alzheimer's? So when, when a person goes through that first phase that I mentioned, getting a good clinical history and, and doing a, a screener test, um, or once a person is referred to a, a specialist to assess memory um, or cognitive problems, the, the next uh, step usually or the gold standard is to get more comprehensive neuropsychological testing. Uh, which uh, unless the patient is very impaired to the point that they will not be able to participate in the testing is a type of testing that can be very helpful. Uh, It it is similar to those uh, brief tests that I mentioned in the sense that uh, we evaluate different cognitive domains, different different areas of cognition, Uh, but it's a a lot more in-depth. So these are tests that are done by a uh, neuropsychologist, and that's a clinical psychologist who has special or additional training to assess cognitive function and cognitive domains uh, with a wide array of, array of tests. And then these tests can be added or modified depending on, on the specific case. But what they do is they spend sometimes two, three, even four hours um, with a patient going through different batteries of tests, each one assessing different uh, cognitive domains. And it gives us a very uh, broad and in-depth assessment of their mental abilities at that particular time, right? Um, doesn't tell us about, uh, there are some ways that you can estimate how, based on the history and other things, what would be expected for this individual, but all you're getting is is a snapshot in time, but that snapshot is very important because, again, if you find that this person has subtle or more significant deficits in specific areas like memory, language, and visual-spatial function, just to give an example. Um, that would be concerning in someone who is, uh, you know, in their late 60s or 70s or 80s, that would be concerning for uh, Alzheimer's disease, right? Sometimes um, it will be determined during those tests that perhaps depression and anxiety are the main drivers of a cognitive impairment because um, when someone is very depressed or very anxious, uh, they can present as having mild cognitive impairment or even uh, uh, dementia. The other thing that it does is it establishes a good baseline so that let's say this is a person who's going to be followed over time and, and if we repeat it a year or two years down the road, uh, we can determine if there has been 
a change, a decline in any of these measures or in multiple of these measures. Uh, so it gives you a, a, an idea of progression, which is another important aspect, uh, especially with mild cognitive impairment, because one thing that I uh, perhaps didn't mention before is that mild cognitive impairment is just part of this continuum of cognitive decline um, and thus put you at a significant risk for progressing to something more significant like uh, dementia. In my preparation for our conversation this morning, Dr. Fernandez, I found that uh, among your professional um, writing is uh, a piece about impaired navigation or what I found to be getting lost in familiar surroundings. And 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 this doesn't necessarily mean that we have mild uh, cognitive impairment either, but it might lead to something that does. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about the brain's inability to process information specifically around this idea of kind of getting lost in familiar surroundings. Absolutely. I'll be happy to. Um, obviously, that's my area of, of research and, and uh, so a specific interest. And um, the, the deficits in navigation or visual spatial perception, more broadly speaking, um, are, are common and actually very significant in different neurological disorders that cause dementia, uh, and especially in, in Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, uh, um, a significant uh, percentage of patients who, who develop Alzheimer's present with visual spatial deficits. Um, before they even have memory issues. And when we talk about visual spatial function is we're talking about visual perception, things like uh, depth perception, judging distances, judging speed, or our ability to navigate in space, to uh, orient ourselves in space, um, or do what we call path integration, right? When you're walking or driving, you're making turns and 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 everything around you is shifting as you make those turns and in your brain you're creating or following a cognitive map and so you know every time you turn which direction you're going and where you are now in relationship to where you were before so that's these are complex uh, processes that happen in the brain um that allow us to to uh, find our way around and and those can be affected in Alzheimer's and in other dementias very early on. And um, for example, one of the things that some patients tell me, or many patients tell me, is tell me is, you know, doc, I'm I'm getting lost. But it's not that I don't know or don't remember uh, what what I was going to do or where I was going to go. What happens is that I know I'm going to go to Walmart and get in the car and start driving, but. Uh, then I make a turn, and next thing I know, I'm I'm a little bit confused, and make another turn, and in a f- few minutes, then I just have to call my wife because I don't know where I am anymore. So that is not an uncommon complaint, and so you see that it might not be an actual memory problem as opposed to a navigation problem, and the reason for that is that the parts of the brain that process a lot of this visual spatial information, particularly as it pertains to motion and direction and where you're headed, uh, are in the back part of the brain, an area we call the parietal lobes, uh, that are affected uh, very selectively and very early in Alzheimer's disease in particular. That can also be affected in other conditions like dementia with Lewy bodies. And, um, and, And in fact, we see in brain imaging that uh, many times there's a lot of shrinkage in that area of the brain. And 
there is in fact a form of Alzheimer's because uh, Alzheimer's disease we now know there's different uh, variants of of the of the disease um, and the memory variant where people start with memory problems is by far the most common but the visual spatial variant is also relatively common where those deficits in orientation and getting lost and maybe judging distances or uh, not being able to find things that are in plain sight because they can't see when there's a lot of clutter. Uh, so those those kinds of phenomena are, are common in Alzheimer's, in any type of Alzheimer's, but certainly in the visual spatial form of Alzheimer's. So what we're doing now is uh, using these deficits uh, as a marker of, of, uh, of uh, Alzheimer's or other dementias. And what we have done in, in my lab is develop a, um, a system using EEG or brain waves where we can measure the brain's response to specific visual stimuli that simulate motion. What you would see if you were driving down the road or, or walking, the world around you is moving. Uh, and that motion tells you a lot about where you're headed, how fast you're going, or when you turn uh, to the left or to the right. And so all that information is processed in that back part of the brain. So we've used simulations of this motion to uh, evoke responses in the brain that we can measure and we can quantify. And we're looking at those uh, as potential uh, functional markers of Alzheimer's that may be affected even before other symptoms of the disease start. And uh, we're, we're also looking at this to learn more about what happens in the brain with conditions like Alzheimer's. And, and some of these changes may actually be present in the uh, mild cognitive impairment phase or even in the preclinical phase of the disease. Uh, so that's the, the, the focus of, our, of uh, some of our research here in, in, in the Pat Summit uh, Clinic. Dr. Fernandez, thank you so much for your time today. I just have one final question, and that is, is mild cognitive impairment a genetic condition? And what assessments can be done to find the presence, perhaps, of the early stage mild cognitive impairment and the development of uh, MCI? Yes. So in terms of the, uh, the uh, genetics of the disease, uh, again, it's not that mild cognitive impairment per se would, be, would, would have a genetic predisposition. It is more what is the underlying disease process in the brain that is causing the mild cognitive impairment. And with Alzheimer's being by far the most common type of neurodegenerative progressive brain disorder that, uh, that affects uh, cognitive function and starts as mild cognitive impairment, uh, we do talk about the, the possibility for certain genetic risk factors or, uh, or genetic mutations that can actually um, uh, be very significant. Uh, but it's important to know that if we talk about Alzheimer's disease specifically, um, the the forms, the genetic or familial forms of the disease are exceedingly rare. Uh, and those occur primarily in uh, people who have a very strong family history of early onset uh, dementia. And that means people who develop mild cognitive impairment and later, later go on to develop dementia uh, at a very early age, meaning in sometimes as early as their 30s or 40s or 50s. Um, and those, uh, those uh, uh, individuals who have early onset uh, Alzheimer's uh, in, in very rare occasions can have a specific um, mutation. There are several specific mutations that are what we call autosomal dominant, meaning that 
if a person has that gene, uh, they will at some point develop the disease. Now, those are less than probably 1% of all the cases of Alzheimer's. So it's a very minuscule um, uh, percentage, and it is uh, uh, not only rare, but, um, but associated with very early onset dementia. But when we talk about a risk gene, we're referring to a situation where the presence of the gene doesn't guarantee or or assure that, that you will get the disease. It just means that your risk compared to someone who doesn't have it is higher. Uh, but there are lots of people who have these forms of the gene that will never go on to develop uh, the disease. Dr. Fernandez, thank you so much for your time. This has been a very helpful discussion, conversation. We would love to have you back, of course, Dr. Fernandez is the director at the Pat Summit Clinic at the University of Tennessee. Dr. Fernandez, thank you for your time. And, uh, and again, we'd love to have you back as this, uh, as this is an ongoing area of interest for our audience. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, I would love to, to come back and chat with you again in, in the future. Uh, just let me know. Thank you so much. My thanks to Dr. Roberto Fernandez from the Pat Summit Clinic at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. Hopefully today's show has given you the information you need to approach mild cognitive impairment with confidence. There's a lot you can do to develop your remaining cognitive skills. You can improve your fitness, which we'll be talking more about here on the show. You can lower your blood pressure, reduce cholesterol, and quit smoking. You can find out more on our website, notold-better.com. Thanks for joining us this morning, and until next time, let's talk about better.